0: Hey everybody, quick update before we get into this episode of Cine Study. When I started editing this episode, there was some serious crackling beneath my voice. And, and when I say a little bit, it was really a lot. There was a lot of cracking and crackling beneath my voice. I did my best to get rid of it, but it also simultaneously made me sound kind of underwater. But this underwater voice is better than what it was, I can assure you of that. So I appreciate you sticking with this Kind of not so great audio for this episode, you're still gonna hear a little bit of crackling beneath the underwaterness, but uh, again, I appreciate it uh if you stick with this episode. um I think I know what caused the issue, so I think I'm preventing it now, like as I sit here recording this little note, hopefully there is no cracking, and if there is if there is some crackling right now, then uh I have a more serious audio issue to figure out. But I think I've put a stop to it, so uh, I appreciate it if you're sticking through this episode with the not so great audio quality, and hopefully we will return to a crisper form after this episode. All right, thank you, and on with the show. Welcome to Cinema Study, comprehensive takes on what makes movies great. Now for our 42nd episode, The Podcast for Life, the Universe and Everything. Rebel Without a Cause mini review. welcome back to CineStudy. Study. I am your host Dylan, and today's episode is episode forty-two, a mini review, as mentioned, of *Rebel Without a Cause*, a movie that's uh, it's a little bit different than what I've been covering lately. I, I you know, I kind of look back on past episodes, and I've been gravitating a lot towards more recent movies. There's not, there's not a lot of classics on here, and so why not take it way back to 1955 to a certifiable iconic classic, *Rebel Without a Cause*? Uh and that's what we're going to do in this mini review format, mini reviews. If you haven't listened to one before, it's not as in-depth as my extended analysis episodes, but I still try to cover a lot, you know, cover all the basic uh just just everything, you know. It's just a little bit more loose than an extended analysis, but hopefully still a pretty in-depth look at Rebel Without a Cause. Before we get into this review, there's a couple things I want to get out of the way. First of all, in typical cinema study fashion, this mini review will be divided into both spoiler-free and spoiler-full sections. So you can listen to this without having seen Rebel Without a Cause until I start talking about spoilers, or all at once if you've already seen it, or all at once if you say, I don't really care about Rebel Without a Cause, although I don't know why you would be listening to this then. And there are certainly some spoilers to talk about here, so be warned. The second thing I want to say is, I've been saying for you know months now, maybe even over a year now, I want to make an extended analysis, and the episode has just not been there. I made one halfway, and I just was not happy with it at all and I scrapped it, and and some of you may have seen that on Instagram. Just in general, in the last year, episodes have come pretty sparsely, I would say. So I want to say right up front that my dream of making this show more consistent in terms of a schedule, I just don't know if and when that will ever come to be, so I thank you guys who listen and stick with the fact that episodes come at very random times and pretty large gaps between them at times. Uh, It's really just more of when inspiration hits that I record a podcast, something I really find Uh, you know, worthy of talking about on this podcast because I do like to really outline my thoughts before going into an extended analysis. That's something I started more recently, maybe around the La La Land episode. Uh, and I think it made the episodes better, but it also makes them a little bit more difficult to record. I've talked at length about all of this before on past episodes about extended analysis, but all that being said, I am outlining one right now. It is when I actually plan on doing, you know, the thing is, as mentioned, I don't know when it's going to happen that I'm going to be able to record this or even just finish outlining it, because there's a lot that needs to go into it. But I will have one on the horizon at some point. On a similar note, I'd like to maybe write another what makes blank great at some point. Thank you for the feedback I got on that style of episode. I heard from a couple people there, so I thank you. And just one last thing is is thank you for listening to, you know, just the show in general. As mentioned, I, I, I thank you for sticking through these spells where I don't post an episode. Uh, Yeah, thank you. All right, so enough disclaimer talk. Seem to open every podcast with some sort of disclaimer. Let's talk Rebel Without a Cause. If you're somehow not familiar with Rebel Without a Cause, it's a 1955 film starring James Dean, directed by Nicholas Ray. And I'll just give you the quick IMDb plot synopsis. A rebellious young man with a troubled past comes to a new town, finding friends and enemies. That town is Los Angeles. And if you follow me on Letterboxd, you know that I just watched a ton of L.A. films. And this is one that I felt like I had a lot to talk about. And so uh, here we are. Rebel Without a Cause. Let's start with the heart and soul of this movie, which is, of course, James Dean and one of his few feature film performances. True tragedy, obviously. But man, does he crush it here. He is the heart, the soul and the energy of this movie. Uh, one thing I really found interesting about this is for a movie that came out in 1955, James Dean is very naturalistic in his approach to this performance. You know, you look You look back on maybe some noirs before this. There's always kind of that semi-stilted way of talking, or it's all a little bit hammy sometimes. Not always, but I feel like here you're getting a very organic, like real look at just this teenager who's new to LA. There's there's not as much over-the-topness with his character as things you might have seen in the '40s or '30s, and it just felt like a real change driven by James Dean and his, you know, by just his mannerisms and behavior and the way he speaks. And even as a character, which I'm sure I'll touch on throughout this episode about his character of Jim Stark, does James Dean turn it up to eleven sometimes? Yes, and I'll probably come back to this sometimes he goes full throttle and he's really going for it you know i i I'll talk about that again later on with some specific moments. But when he choose the scenery in this way, it works exceptionally well, especially in contrast again what we've seen with with kind of some golden age performances and even some of the other performances in this movie. Main takeaway is James Dean gives. A performance for the ages here. Some people have heard, you know, they don't like it. They think it's aged a little poorly. I think it works great. Everything in this movie is sort of a time capsule of of the age, of a transition from Golden Age to some of the movies we see coming out of the 60s that, you know, again, we're still five years away, but you're starting to see a little bit of a shift into some different types of stories and different ways of portraying them. And I think at the center of that is James Dean, who gives a great performance. I couldn't take my eyes off of him throughout this movie. He really puts the whole movie on his back because without James Dean, this movie it's still good, but he is what drives it forward. All right, shifting gears a little bit. I, I, I kind of with uh, with mini reviews, it's not as structured as an extended analysis, so I've just kind of got some basic points, and they're not really correlated. Uh, but hopefully, you don't mind me bouncing around. I want to talk about Dutch angles because they are used throughout this movie. However, they're used just sparsely enough to be effective without feeling like a gimmick. Dutch angles inherently feel a little bit gimmicky because it's just like, hey, watch as we shift your attention slightly diagonally. You know, you can tell the director's trying to do something and it doesn't feel as seamless as some of the other camera techniques or things that you might employ in your movie. So in this movie, the way they're used is so perfect because they're used at just the right crucial moments and they're used not that often. A little touch of a Dutch angle is what really works. Not constantly relying on it, or framing the entire movie on slightly askew lines. They always give a little accent to a scene, as like a little bit of an edge or a little bit of concern to, uh, you know, some big change in what's going to happen with the characters or some big twist. You know, it's it's perfectly used at the right moments. I don't really have much to say beyond that. So much as it's just like Dutch angles can very easily be abused, and this movie uses them to the best degree. Like they just. Perfectly moderate amount of Dutch angles to give you that little bit of edge and concern, as mentioned, but not really take your attention off of anything and like, whoa, can we, you know, can we reorient the camera a little bit, please? All right, moving on from Dutch angles, again, mentioned, bouncing around. We're going to talk score, okay? Score is interesting in this movie because here's one of my true uh, issues with Rebel Without a Cause is it does not feel mixed very well. Maybe it's just the TV I was watching it on or something, but this score was super loud at times. To a point where you couldn't even hear what the characters were saying at times, or they were—it was just really so in your face that you're noticing it. You know, one of the things about scores is you go one or two ways: you go with something that does stick with you, but it's an effective theme, or you do something that's so seamless in the background that you don't even notice it. And Rebel Without a Cause* puts something in your face that's not exactly memorable or, you know, fun to listen to, especially when you're trying to pay attention to some of the action on screen. This isn't a spoiler, but there's a scene involving a knife fight, and the score there is particularly what I'm talking about it is so loud and in your face that I'm just like can we can we scale this back a little bit please like there's not much talking going on here but I'd still like to be able to just focus on the characters and maybe some of their jabs and and some of what they're saying or just you know be in with the characters rather than be bombarded with this loud musical background uh you know and that that really took me out of the movie during that scene which is definitely not a good thing as mentioned you know you got you got to find a balance between the two sort of score techniques I was talking about. I think that's probably the weakest point of Roe Without a Cause, but because it's the weakest point, I don't want to linger on it too much. Let's move on to just some of the ideas in this movie. All right, we're gonna kinda of move on from some of the technical elements because I don't feel like there's you know, a ton of stuff to talk about here. I'd rather talk about some of the actual things going on in this movie in a way that would not be spoilerful yet. We're still in the spoiler free territory for a good amount of time here. Let's talk Los Angeles for a second, because this movie is set in Los Angeles, and Los Angeles wasn't really a place where you set your movie in at this time. You know, there had been some really iconic L.A. movies before this, you know, uh, Sunset Boulevard or any of the movies about making movies. But here we're getting a Los Angeles that's not just a place where you make movies or a place to pretend is the Wild West or something else, and actually just looking at the people that live there or have just moved there and how they're navigating life. That's a real difference from some of the stuff we've seen, and it makes Rebel Without a Cause a really fresh thing looking at it chronologically. You're taking Los Angeles, you're giving it like very real stories rather than sort of the facade that people retroactively see, sort of the luster of Hollywood and things that people see. You're just looking at the lives of some teenagers, and I think that's a really cool contrast that I feel like was kind of unintentional. Like sure, Los Angeles was the movie-making place at this time, But that perception has really even increased over the years. I mean, that's what we see Los Angeles as. It's Hollywood. And this movie kind of takes a spin on that. There's nothing touched here about making movies. It's just suburbs and navigating social hierarchies and stuff like that. I think that's a really unique thing to do. And it works exceptionally well. So within that, let's talk some ideas. There's kind of this contrast in this movie of, as mentioned, the suburbs. And then these sort of huge monoliths, these big locations. For, for big portions of this movie, you're with Jim Stark just at his house or like in his neighborhood. And it feels pretty typical, honestly. It feels like it could be anywhere, just small town USA. You know, you get some palm trees and you can see some distinctly Californian architecture at times, but it really feels applicable to anywhere in the country, which I'm sure was a choice because you're trying to tell this story of a teenager. This is going to resonate with a lot of people. And I think, I think moving it into this bright, sunny area that's just, Oh, look at this glorious life in California. Maybe takes away from that a little bit. So I appreciate that sort of choice to put in this very standard suburban situation. However, you then move to these, again, these big monoliths is kind of a word that jumps to mind when I think of it. The Griffith Observatory or, you know, an abandoned mansion in the hills or the steep cliffs over the Pacific. You know, these are distinctly Los Angeles things. That serves a couple of purposes. One, You know, I mentioned James Dean turns it up to 11. The movie as a whole, and I'll come back to this, has a lot of melodrama and just really amplifying the stakes beyond what maybe the issues you see in this movie would be. And so creating a huge backdrop like the Griffith Park Observatory, it just automatically adds to that melodrama and that boosted sense of stakes. But what this kind of contrast also does is pretty clearly a sort of escape from the mundane and from conformity. And there's kind of a couple different paths here to look at. First of all, on just a pure surface level, you're taking this kid, Jim Stark, who lives in the suburbs, and you're putting him in these inherently risky and kind of exciting situations of being in an observatory up in the hills at night all alone or being in this huge abandoned mansion lit only by candlelight. Like if you're trying to demonstrate Jim as a rebel, that location change is a big step. But still with a little bit of edge to it, you know it's a little bit creepy being in this observatory at night it's a little bit odd being in this mansion it just doesn't feel quite right even if it does feel like this escape with the people who you've truly come to care about by the way, when they're at that mansion, that's a sunset boulevard pool that's pretty cool, right The other thing is when you're in this observatory the first time you're getting this huge cosmic discussion of like the end of the world these these big transcending cosmic issues, and then you're placing Jim Stark in that observatory when it's his issues that are right in front of him, are being encountered, you know, like what's going to happen to his friends and stuff like that. It's a great way of maintaining that melodrama that really this is not just some sort of minimal issue. It's not something to just kind of be disposed of. This is a real thing for Jim Stark. This is this is big for him. This is life-defining for him. So, yeah, I just love some of the choices of the location and how they tie into the story and some of the decisions that Jim is making throughout this movie. I think that is something that this movie... You know, it's kind of recognized for the Griffith Observatory stuff, but when you look at it, like, it's not just a pretty backdrop and it's really doing a lot for the story. I think that's particularly impressive. All right, so I've been kind of alluding to this over and over again. Everything's turned up to 11. You know, Spinal Tap reference over and over again. You have to buy into this a little bit. You know, you kind of have to buy into the fact that everything is very dramatic for the fact that it's just kind of, let's see how this new kid fits in at town. And certainly the stakes... Become very high objectively, but maybe at first you don't buy into that, right? I think if you really sit back and get really invested in Jim, which is easy to do with how fun and engaging James Dean's performance is, suddenly that maybe over dramatic tone you're watching becomes very real to you, at least it was to me. And I, I think that that's not gonna work for everybody, but I think if you really get in with this movie and what it's going for and accept that it's gonna do so on a very big level, for the just situations of teenagers that it's dealing with, it becomes even better. Plus, beneath this melodrama, there's some great scenes. First of all, there's some great action scenes beneath the surface of, wow, this is kind of crazy that just some teenagers are doing this, right? I don't want to spoil too much, but there's a knife fight and there's something called Chicken Run. And those are both very suspenseful when they weren't drowned out by the score, by the way. Even if you're kind of not in with how over-the-top the story has come to at that point. Like, I didn't expect a knife fight in the opening 30 minutes or so of this movie. That's not much of a spoiler again, but it happens. And I'm like, this is more than I thought this movie would be. But when you actually just sit there and watch it and and take that dramaticism out of it and just focus on what's happening, it's well done. It's well shot. It's suspenseful. And I think you care about these characters so much that these scenes of suspense are given added significance, you know, you're really invested in this. Real quick on the knife fight, it also really sets the tone for the rest of the movie so that they can continue to have these big stakes. Like if you just, you know, stick with the first one, then the rest of the, you know, the chicken run and things like that feel a lot more natural and then you really do care about the stakes because it's like, all right, this is the level we're going to go for. It kind of eases you into it in a sort of the knife fight is sort of the practice round in a way. All right. I've rambled on enough about kind of weird themes and and some of the more abstract stuff that I'm not even sure I uh, clarified my thoughts on very well. Let's talk just plain old relationships, because that is a big driving force of this movie. Uh, The most compelling relationship of this movie, of course, being Jim Stark and his parents. That's a a great triangle of characters. It gave me a sort of death of a salesman vibe. You know, the, the son who doesn't quite know what he wants, but it's not what his father wants. And his father's not quite the role model that he should be in a lot of different ways. And I think that idea is really well executed throughout this movie. And that peaks with a certain argument scene. I don't think this is quite, uh, spoilery enough to warrant placing in the spoiler full section. So there's an argument in this movie between Jim and his parents. And I'm going to talk about it here at length. If you really feel like, wow, that's too much, <laughs> let me, let me wait on that, skip. Just skip ahead. But I don't think this is really going to ruin anything. I'm sort of backing off my, uh, almost OCD nature about spoilers that I've had uh, for many of these episodes, some things, you know, they're not going to change your experience that much. So first of all, you've got the Dutch angles here. This is where they're used best. They tilt just enough to kind of represent who's got the upper hand in this argument, because a staircase is used as kind of like a a power hierarchy in the scene. You know, if you're up on the stairs, you're kind of in control of this argument and the Dutch angle takes everything and it puts the three individuals on an equal level when the situation calls for it. So you're kind of using both the physical space and the movement of the camera to signify who's in control and which character is really driving the narrative at that point and where Jim stands in all of this. And I think that's a really cool kind of coupling of techniques. By the way, James Dean is really on his game in this scene. This is maybe his best acted scene in the whole movie. He crushes it here in so many ways. The anger, the just kind of despair you can feel, also the disappointment in his family, and it's all kind of been brewing up until this point. He let it out a little bit in the opening few scenes, but really reaches a peak here. You're also getting the character traits fully exposed. Like, you can really get to the core of who these characters are in this scene. You're really getting to the dad's, like, Willie Loman-esque platitudes without much of a backbone. You know, just kind of like, here's what it takes to be a man, which is what Jim wants to do, but they're not helpful. There's really nothing to them. There's, there's no substance to them. You're really getting down to the motivation and and the willingness of the mother to just drop everything and move out at this first sign of trouble, which allows you to consider whose best interest she really has in mind, her own or her family's. By the way, returning to the dad for a second with his kind of lack of a spine, he's sitting throughout this movie. He's in the sort of uh, submissive position throughout this scene. It's it's Jim and the mom who trade spots on the stairs and, and are kind of going at each other's throats for a lot of this. And the dad just kind of sits idly by at the bottom of all this. And you can tell just there's nothing there. He's kind of a shell. And the last thing you're really getting to with the three characters is Jim just wanting a break, just a change, just a, you know, a quote along the lines of, I just want to do something good. And how he's kind of bookended by these two people who don't really have that in mind for him. One who's supposedly supporting that, but not really doing anything. And one who's just plain out not supporting that and willing to move him around without him ever figuring things out for his own or just being allowed to really see where he fits in or be himself in a way. This scene is just brilliant. It's so well done on a filmmaking level, on a performance level, on just getting to the crux of who these characters are at a point in the story where you don't really know what Jim's move could be. Like what is he gonna do here? There's there's a lot to consider by this point in the movie, uh, with the stakes and and, and Jim's next course of action. Easily my favorite scene from this movie. And I definitely felt it deserved to be talked about here in the spoiler-free section, so you can get an idea of what makes this movie so good uh, without just saving it for behind the spoiler wall. All right, let's talk about Judy for a second. This will probably be the last character or thing in general I talk about in the spoiler-free section because there's some other characters here who get into some more spoiler territory, and I want to wait on them. So, Judy. Judy could have been used as an interesting character, played by Natalie Wood. She's got the chops. But she's just kind of used as a plot device. And I'll return to this with the spoiler full section. But I definitely wanted more from the character of Judy. I understand that the driving force of this movie is James Dean. And I'll talk about that again a little bit later. But I would have liked to see something a little bit more out of Judy. There's some things that don't quite add up. There's a little bit of lack of depth with her character. That's a character I felt like could have been developed a little bit more. Especially with some of the themes with her family that we were getting at. Could have gone a step further, but you know who am I to say I didn't make this movie? And maybe that would have drawn it out. Maybe in an alternate reality, I'm complaining because we spent so much time on Natalie Wood's story instead of uh, what's going on with James Dean. I don't know, but just a thought. I would have liked to see a little bit more from the character of Judy. All right, that probably didn't make much sense if you haven't seen this movie. So you know, maybe I should have uh, saved that. But you know, at least you get an idea of, of where I'm at with this movie. This movie is really solid. Way better than I expected. For some reason, my expectations for this movie were not super high. I don't know why. Like, sometimes I just go into a movie with instinctively low expectations. And, I, like, I'm always wrong. I don't know why I have these expectations sometimes. They only get you into trouble. So, leave your baggage at the door when you're going to watch a movie. I don't know. For some reason, I was like, Yeah, this ain't going to be too great. It's great. It's really, really solid. I'm going to give Rebel Without a Cause 8 out of 10 slick red jackets. Because that red jacket, I mean... It's what you see on the poster, it's what you know, and uh, yeah, it's awesome. It's as awesome as you would think it would be. It's pretty sick. He wears that jacket throughout, looks pretty cool. Alright, with that being said, it's time to move into the spoiler section. So, for the spoiler-free listeners out there who aren't going to listen past this point, I will spare you the plugs, but I thank you for listening to my thoughts on Rebel Without a Cause, even if some of it was a little bit more detailed than if you hadn't seen this movie as the spoiler-free section should be able to bridge the gap between those who have seen and those who haven't seen, and was a little bit tailored to those who have seen uh, unintentionally in this episode. Uh, But thank you for sticking with this episode. Thank you for sticking with the show. I'm excited to be recording this episode, and then, you know, who knows for the future. Again, I don't want to make any promises because I've yet to fulfill uh, many of them. So, (laughs) my bad. All right, that being said, it's time to move into the spoiler-full section. You're about to hear some spoilers for Rebel Without a Cause. So I thank you for listening. And if you're still listening, welcome to the spoiler full section. All right, spoilers for Rebel without a cause. I may change that robotic voice thing. That's been wearing on me a little bit, so uh that that might change at some point. But, let's talk spoilers. Let's start with the big one, Plato. Plato's death. This worked, right? I, th- th- this is just a statement. It's it, it's an effective death. But for some reason Plato was not really an effective character for me. Plato didn't work for me. Uh I I don't know why. I think a, a little bit of it was Salmoneo's performance. Something about it, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, sometimes there's just performances that can't put my finger on why, but I I don't quite enjoy the. I don't know if it's the approach or just the actual character. The character of Plato is somebody who needs support and somebody who is is figuring out their own life, but you know can't really do it on their own. But at some point, it crossed the line into a little bit of like weird obsession with the character of Jim Stark to a point that it bothered me a little bit. It felt just a little bit strange and. Maybe it's a little bit out of place because most of the relationships we see in this movie are so empty. They're so not there. They're, they're very, uh, you know, a lot of budding heads. And this one is so unconditionally attached to the character of Jim Stark that it, it feels a little bit strange. I don't know. It just felt a little bit, felt a little bit unnatural to me for some reason. It was kind of the squeaky wheel for this movie of its core characters. Um, but as mentioned, the death scene works. And I think it's because of how invested you are with James Dean at this point, who just wants to do something good with his life. I mentioned this with the argument scene. You know, I think you're so attached to what's going on with Jim and how he's just like, he just wants this one chance to do something, to get it right. That when he like comes so close, but can't quite get there when Plato is shot and he and he thought, oh man, I've saved the day. I, I took the bullets. I've I've really become somebody this guy needs, somebody he can count on, somebody who is, who is not what my father is to me. And to see that, you know slip through his fingers in, in a such a tragic way and a, a fairly unexpected way, and I think that's what makes Plato's death so effective. Plato, as a character, you know, I didn't like him that much. His death is still very tragic, but that was the extra salt in the wound, I guess you could say, or with who you're so invested in this movie, that Jim's chance to like really turn his life around in a way that he like can feel like he made a difference and did something right. As opposed to constantly being like shopped around to different to different neighborhoods and places, and never quite uh, like being the the puzzle piece that fits with the rest of the school or or wherever he's been, it's like seeing that come so close but just falling short, like like you know fumbling at the goal line there. That it's it's pretty brutal. And I I apologize if it sounds like I'm treating Plato's death as like a like a plot device for Jim more so than like a tragic thing that happens to the character of Plato, but. that's where I stood especially is that it's, it's like, it's Jim really just like, he can't get it right. And, and in a movie where you'd think maybe he figures it out by the end, it's just not quite there when, when dawn comes and the world has ended. All right. My other kind of spoiler thing to talk about. Um, well, actually there's two more. I, I want to talk about Judy as mentioned, but I want to talk about how these deaths are moved on from so fast. Like I can't rationalize that at all. Like um, Buzz dies in the uh, chicky run sequence Everybody just kind of looks off the cliff for a second, and then they're like, alright, we're out of here. Jim's torn up about it, but his, uh, but Buzz's friends aren't. They just don't want to get in trouble. Judy moves on to Jim in lightning speed. Like, we're just moving on very quickly from Buzz's death. And similarly, after Plato's death, it's just like, uh, hey, mom and dad, this is Judy. And we don't reflect on it too much, and they head out. You know, it's tragic in the moment, but then it's like, alright, that's done. I don't know. It's it's strange. I, I can't quite put my finger on why. I can't quite explain why these deaths are moved on from so fast. Like I, I can't see much reasoning for it. Maybe just the, the pacing of the movie uh, called for it with, with how Nicholas Ray wanted to pace this thing. But, I mean, I would have liked to see a little bit more of like a deep hit taken by the characters at any of these huge deaths than what we saw. James Dean sells it with his uh, I Got the Bullets line. Here's the thing. La La Land ruined I Got the Bullets for me. I mean, I knew it was going to be in this movie because I knew Ryan Gosling had said it in La La Land. But I thought, you know, if you're quoting a movie, I thought maybe he was quoting some funny scene. So this whole movie, I'm waiting, like, where is I Got the Bullets? What's that going to mean? And then Jim takes the bullets from Plato inside the observatory. I'm like, is it going to mean what I think it's going to mean? And then Plato dies. I'm like, it is. Ryan Gosling quoted a crucial point in the story, a tragic point in the whole story. So. I knew it was coming, but it was a very well delivered line and deserves to be a quoted line, I'd say. I don't know. Something about it, just the way he delivers it with that just impassioned tone. It's great. All right, so the last thing I want to mention is Judy as kind of a plot device. And I think this is, again, I wanted to see more. I think Nicholas Ray, if I was Nicholas Ray, Here's two reasons I might have made Judy more of a plot device. Like here, here's why I think it is this way, even though I wanted to see a little bit more. First of all, what do I mean by Judy as a plot device? I mean, she kind of just, again, she moves on from Buzz really fast and just becomes Jim's girl. And her storyline with her father and kind of like the weird tension between them and, and like how she's dealing with being a daughter and how the father is, has like this perception of her as it's time to grow up and, and, and you're too grown to be doing the things that you're doing. Like, I wanted a little bit more from that storyline because it's kind of just left behind after that scene between the father and, and Judy. So that's what I mean is Judy as a, as kind of a, a plot device just kind of moves around more of like a chess piece than, uh, than anything like integral to this movie. So the first way you can kind of look at this, I think, is maybe the problems of teenagers, as much as they're given, uh, dramaticism here, maybe are a little bit trivial at the end of the day. Maybe they are, maybe teenagers are willing to just move around you know it's on to the next thing and and these things that seem so huge in the moment maybe don't have the lasting impact that they might think they do but that just doesn't feel right to me like something about that doesn't feel right at all okay That, that feels off that feels wrong to say but maybe there is a little bit of undertone just throughout this movie of as much as we're amplifying the stakes at the end of the day there is still just a trivial nature to some of these things that anybody finds important at a moment in their life maybe but Buzz falling off a cliff doesn't feel like one of those things that should be trivial that we move on from fast, so that argument does not hold a lot of water. I think at the core of this, why is Judy just kind of a character that's there not doing much? This movie, Rebel Without a Cause, was going to be a black and white bee movie that disappeared from the public eye very quickly. Like That was literally the studio's intention. They're just like, eh, it's just kind of like a dramatic teenager piece, I guess. But then this movie gets James Dean attached. And it turns from a B movie into like, whoa, we need to do a couple things here. One, we need to put all the attention on James Dean because he's the it guy right now. And two, now we have somebody who can really sell this story in a way that people haven't seen before. Because again, James Dean's really bringing a, a very fresh approach to acting in general for this movie. So I think the fact that this movie morphed into this, like, all right, we're, we're making it a James Dean vehicle. Like it's him. He's in the spotlight it meant some of the other characters had to be relegated to the side a little bit. Um, for both, like that's what the audience wants to see, but we've got a character who really has a lot of substance to him, both on the page and now with the performance. Like that's who we should stay with. That's that's who the that's who you know throughout this movie. Like I said, he's the force of this movie. He's who you want to keep your eye on throughout. Any scene that he's left out of, something felt missing. You know, it's just he is the energy of this movie. So I think that's the the, one, the two ways that you can maybe look at why Judy is a plot device. I think it's just interesting to kind of consider the counter argument is why I wanted to talk about this in this for full section. But personally, at the end of the day, I don't know, I wanted to see a little bit more from her. There's nothing much going on with the character. There's a great theme and argument set up between her and her father. And it's just, again, it's it's just left behind as soon as we move on from that scene. So, I mean, you set it up in the police station, which is a great sequence at the beginning with the inspiration of uh you're tearing me apart, Lisa, in there, but. I I don't know, it felt like they really set it up great in those two scenes with Judy and then it just kind of disappeared. Alright, hate to end on kind of a weird note of like, uh, why is Judy left behind in this movie and I don't know why it makes some semblance of sense, but not really. I don't know. This was like like a weird practice for me in like, counter-arguing my own point somehow. I don't know. Maybe that was interesting. Maybe it wasn't. But, all that being said, I think that's really it spoilers for *Red without a cause we've talked everything from how los angeles is incorporated in this movie to james dean and how he's just awesome in this movie and i need to see his other performances as short of a portfolio as that as it unfortunately is um but that was nicholas ray's *Red without a cause 1955 um i don't have much left to say i thank you for listening to this mini review check us out on instagram at cinestudy podcast facebook is the same although it's very rarely used. <laughs> you can email us, podcast at com. if you have any thoughts, if you have any recommendations, requests, anything. If you like this show, I would really appreciate it if you left a review on iTunes. It makes a big difference. Um, and I just love to hear what your thoughts are with the show, what you like, what we can improve on. So also really a random thing. Have you noticed I always say we when I'm talking about this show? Like I know it used to be me and Grant and Mason and like, It was kind of a collective, but it's just kind of been me now for a while and I still say we. And I don't know, it feels more professional. So hope you don't mind that I always say we. Something about that. I I just like, I can't just say me. It doesn't feel right. Last thing and most important plug, letterboxed. If you want to see what I'm rating, what I'm watching, what I'm reviewing, lists that I'm making, lists that I might do an episode on, lists that may never see an episode, but are still interesting. I hope get on there. Follow me at filmdillon. And I will follow you back, of course, because Letterboxd is awesome, and I love to see what people are watching. All right, that's really it. Thank you for listening to this mini-review. As mentioned, hopefully somewhere in the distant future will be an extended analysis and or a what makes Blank great, because I'm trying to workshop both a little bit right now. Um, I'd like to do a couple list episodes. I've got two big franchises I'd like to rank at some point. And uh, yeah, that's really it for Cine Study. So I thank you for listening. I've been Dylan, and I'll catch you next time.